Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Gary Arndt from Everything Everywhere, travel blogger extraordinaire who has quite the experience. He's been travel blogger of the year many times and has been blogging since 2007 and he's one of the like og travel bloggers huge following to 2010 he was actually uh, one of the best blogs in the world by time magazine he's done a lot in the travel industry we actually just got done recording and still kind of on cloud nine from the interview and he goes through all different things about his career how he started traveling the world how he started the blog how it eventually took off completely i mean it just exploded and he became one of the top travel bloggers in a matter of like six years and we go through what he would do differently now if he started a travel blog again from scratch and the story of how he resisted the temptation to take a five million dollar moon rock in the solomon islands this was such a fun and fascinating interview with gary i will have to have on actually for a second round because i enjoyed it so much and there's way too many questions i had that we actually did not get to but i'm excited for you to check it out the show notes for this episode are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review and subscribing. Please subscribe. You'll just, it's just helpful for everybody. Also, you can check out Just Go Grind on Instagram, instagram.com slash justgogrind. Without further ado, here is Gary Arndt from everythingeverywhere.com. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on and reconnect and go through essentially your whole career and how you built a business out of travel blogging, which it's obviously one of the most successful travel bloggers and one of the originals, as they say, the OGs. And what I'm curious of, I know you've explained this to many people before, but for those listening here and haven't heard before, how did you kind of first get your start with traveling the world? I sold my house and I just started traveling. I came up with the idea of traveling around the world for a year. This was about late 2005, I think. And I had sold a company, started a couple other companies. I was, you know, I'd done quite well. I went back to school for a few years, uh, studied geology and geophysics just because it was something I wanted to do. I realized that I probably didn't want to pursue getting a PhD because I was probably too old for it. And I saw what other people were going through and it did not look appealing. So I hatched this idea of, traveling around the world for a year. Um, you know, I had no kids, no wife. Uh, I, I had nothing stopping me from doing it. I had some money. So I sold my home and uh, set out to travel around the world. And that was kind of yeah. it. And with having this idea, I mean, you say you hatch this idea. What does it look like before you started traveling? Like, what were some of the things you did to plan for this and kind of think about like where you would go first? I'm just curious. The hardest thing was really just tying up all the loose ends. So I had a house. I had to sell the house. And this was in 2007, which was just right at the beginning of when the real estate market kind of uh, busted. Uh, So it it took far longer to sell the house than I had hoped it would. Uh, And then there's just a lot of other things. You know, you accumulate a lot of stuff. What do you do with that stuff? What do you do with your car? What do you do, you know, with all these other things? So that's what really took time, uh, was tying up all those kind of loose ends. And then... So I would say that, you know, from the point of me hatching the idea was probably 18 months to when I started traveling. And I would say six months of that, the last six months was really kind of putting everything into high gear. Yeah. And figuring out, you know, tying up those loose ends and then actually going on the trip. Did you have in mind the place you wanted to go first and kind of a map of what you wanted to do? Because that could look like a lot of different things, I'm sure, for traveling the world. You know, when you when you start doing this and you start reading and doing research, there's just so many places that you want to visit. Yeah. And I quickly found out that my eyes were bigger than my stomach, so to speak, that the world is really, really big and you don't <laughs> realize how big it is until you actually start traveling around it. And yeah. uh, so just to give you an idea. So I started in March of 2007 and I did, you know, it basically took me to november to cross the pacific ocean that's how long it took me i was just island hopping and a lot of that was like the philippines japan taiwan in addition to a lot of little islands uh along the way but yeah i did not touch the continental surface again until i reached south korea 
And then after that, I was once again in like Borneo, Papua New Guinea, Australia uh, for quite a while. So, you know, that that's that's most of Asia, Africa, yeah. Europe, the Americas. That's how long it took me just to do that. I remember, you know, after I'd been doing this for a couple of years, this one couple started the site about slow travel and how, oh, they're, they love to experience travel. And they criticized me and like their website, they were on a nine month trip around the world. I'm like, it took me nine months to cross the ocean. You're <laughs> criticizing me about going too fast. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh my gosh. And I definitely want to dig into more of how you choose your travel places and that whole experience. But I'm also curious as to the, the business side of it and supporting yourself. So obviously you support yourself originally from selling your house and you had a successful business before. But you know, how did that transition after that even to you know, getting to that point where you actually would make money from your travels and, you know, blogging about this whole adventure of yours? Well, for the first several years, I made nothing because there was really no money to be made. The travel industry. So to give you an example. So again, March 2007 is when I started. So I started the website in October 2006. It was not until May of 2010 that anybody in the travel industry, and this is a very, very large industry, like it's one of the biggest industries in the world, and I don't think people realize that, talk to me. So I had been wow. doing this for over three years, and I had one of the most successful travel blogs in the world at that time, although granted, at that time, that didn't mean much. But still, it was three years before anyone even bothered to reach out because they just weren't paying attention to what was going on. And so yeah, there was no money to be made when I started doing it. And nobody was really making money when I first started doing this. And I could tell you the names of all the travel bloggers because there just weren't many. Yeah. And knowing that though, you mentioned the three years obviously before anyone kind of noticed, but you were blogging. So what kept you going? What kept you blogging? You know, when originally I'm sure not like no one was reading at first and it grew, but what kept you blogging through that? Uh, in, a, in a weird way, even though the audience was smaller, I probably had more contact with them than I do now. You know, there was, I mean, there was social media, but it wasn't what it is now. Twitter existed, but it wasn't a big thing, really. Uh, I don't think it became a big thing. It started to become a big thing to like 2009, 2010. Again, Facebook was there. But when I started, I think it was still in that phase where you needed to have a, a college email address to join. So there was no Instagram. There was no Pinterest. There was no anything else. Um, so my website was the social media. And I would write something. People would follow your website through RSS usually. And they would leave a comment on the website. And that's just not how it works today. I would write something. And I, I wasn't writing for SEO. I wasn't doing any of that. It was just observations. I'd have clever puns or song lyrics as, as the heading of an, an article, again, which was horrible for SEO. <laughs> but that was fine back then. And then that's you know what I did. Uh, so, so it was pretty easy to actually to keep going. That was never a problem. Um, what I did realize is that I, so I had run some businesses that, so for example, I had a network of video game websites, uh, you know, the early 2000s. And we were doing at our peak, I think 50 million page views a month across our network. And so this was like the official Counter-Strike website we, we hosted uh, at the time, the, the biggest EverQuest site, stuff like that. Uh, so wow. I knew what real traffic was. And I was not doing any anywhere close to that. So what I did is I was in Hong Kong. Uh, this was near Christmas 2007. And I went to a magazine stand and I bought every travel magazine that I could find. And I sat down and opened up a spreadsheet and I just sort of did an analysis of what is in these magazines. Because I have no publishing background. I have no journalism background, no nothing. But my background is in the internet and business. So I just kind of started counting like, well, how many times do they mention a country editorially in the magazine? How many pages have photography? And one of the things I realized is that they were editorially mentioning, and this is like Condé Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, National Geographic Traveler, and a FAR magazine. I think it was a FAR. I don't know. I don't know if it was out at the time, but certainly those three. Yeah. And they were mentioning 35 different countries and it could have been a hotel in a country, a restaurant in a different country, whatever, uh, not including advertising in each issue of a magazine. Now, there's no way anybody is going to 35 countries in a month, uh, let alone a year, probably even in a lifetime. Most people won't. So right. they're not using these magazines to plan their travels. 
and I realized, and also realized there was a lot of photography. And I realized it was basically travel pornography. People were doing this to fantasize about places they wanted to visit. So I kind of, I had to kind of had a come to Jesus moment where it's like, okay, this website is a waste of my time and I could just travel and not worry about it. Or I could see if I could make something of this. And I didn't know what that meant, but I realized that the, the print publishing world was going to die. And that has basically proven itself true, although a little bit slower than I had thought. Yeah. And if you grow an audience, the money will eventually have to come to you. So that was, those were the founding principles I kind of, you know, in December of 2007, after traveling for, you know, nine months and having the website for a year, I kind of based the website on. And I still think that's true uh, with some modifications. Yeah. And what, what prompted you then in the beginning to even start the website and start kind of tracking your travels? And because you could have obviously just traveled and kept it for yourself. And what caused you to start that in the first place? I mean, I had always been an internet guy. I started, you know, my first internet company in 1994, uh, before Netscape, right? So early um, days. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having arguments, you know, with, with one of the guys I was working with as to whether we should use the table tag because, you know, it, it wasn't supporting, no, it was really early stuff. And I had always had a personal website. Uh, in 1999, I, uh, I had sold my business in 1998 and 1999, I had convinced the company I sold it to, which is a big global company to send me on a trip around the world to go talk about web development to all their offices. So they sent me on a three week whirlwind tour. I went to, uh, Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, uh, Paris, Frankfurt, London, Brussels, uh, in, in three weeks. And wow. I started a website just for the people, my employees and the people back at the office where I would take some digital photos and then just write some things and, and tell them what I experienced. So creating a website was just always something that came natural to me. Uh, so it was just, yeah, it was just kind of a natural thing for me to do. Just like people would post it on Instagram or something today, making a website was just a natural thing for me to do. Yeah. It seemed like, hey, of course, you're going to start a website as you travel the world and you're going to track your, yeah. what you're doing. And yeah. And then as you, you said, it was like, you know, three years before really anyone noticed until 2010, during that period of 2007 to 2010, your first years of traveling with blogging, then how, how often were you blogging? How many posts were you doing? I'm, I'm curious about the details. Uh, man, I don't know. A um, couple times a week, usually they, they, there's a problem um, with a, having a travel blog as opposed to all their types of blogging. And that is you're traveling. You know, I don't know if you know a lot of <laughs> bloggers where they might say, Hey, I'm going on vacation. So no updates for the next week, or I'm going to have a guest, you know, something like that, a guest blogger, or I've scheduled stuff in advance. Well, what if you're on vacation all the time <laughs> and it becomes real difficult, right? So you're off seeing stuff, exploring, doing adventures. You're not sitting at your computer. And so you then have to find time to go and sit at the computer. And I realized that very early on that you can travel and you can blog, but you cannot do them both simultaneously. You have to switch states when you're doing it. If you have a food blog or whatever, you're at home, you're, you can be in front of your computer every day. It's a totally different experience than when you're trying to do stuff on the road. Yeah. And with that then, so you obviously you have to like switch gears because it's you're either enjoying it and taking it all in or you're actually at the computer and, and blogging. Like, what do you think led to the growth of your site in those few years? Obviously it took off tremendously. What led to that growth? I did weird things. So when most people go on an around the world trip, they are going to book a ticket and they're going to go to London, Paris, Rome, Sydney, some major places like that, right? LA, New York, what have you. Yeah. I started and I went to, I guess I started in Minneapolis, went by land to LA, flew to Hawaii, Tahiti, Easter Island. And then I started going to, then went to the Cook Islands, uh, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, the Solomon Islands, Nauru, Kiribati, Guam, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Palau. Nobody goes to these places. I yeah. Mean, it's hard to get to. And to be honest, most people, if you ask them on the street, would not even know that they're countries. Uh, they're extremely <laughs> small. They're extremely remote. And But I've always been fascinated by those kind of places. So that's where I went first. And I think I developed a reputation for 
being a bit more adventurous in, in going to some of these off the wall places. And the other thing is I, I made, so I bought a really expensive camera when I started traveling. I knew absolutely nothing about photography. <laughs> and like many people, I, I started with the idea that if I buy an expensive camera, well, it'll take really good pictures. And I learned immediately that that was not the case because yeah. the photos I was taking were bad, like really bad. And I looked at them <laughs> and I, I said, these are bad. So I just began a process of iteratively trying to get better. And so I, I went from being a complete novice to within six years uh, being named the top travel photographer in North America. That's incredible. Just, just by incrementally improving what I was doing and, and always trying to get better. Yeah. Working on your craft every day and having that experience over time adds up, I'm sure, especially because you just kept going. You kept traveling, you kept taking more and more pictures. And and one of the things I want to go back to real quick, you know, you mentioned that like, kind of the coming to Jesus moment of, you know, am I going to keep going this blog or not? What was the difference once you decided you were going to keep going? How did you change your approach or did you change your approach to blogging? Uh, I put an emphasis on photography. That was big. I posted a photo to my website every day for over eight years. Oh, wow. Never missed a day. Uh, I eventually stopped doing it because I think it had served its purpose. And I think it was actually starting to hurt me. Uh, it helped me in that it made me a better photographer. I think you need to make your work public. Uh, it brought a lot of people to the website because there were things like stumble upon. And like I said, the blog was my social platform. So people would, would come to the blog to look at it. But eventually that got, got replaced by various social platforms. I'd gotten, you know, to be pretty good as a photographer. So I, I just kind of ceased doing it. And it also became kind of a drudgery doing it every day. So that was, that was one big strategy. I focused on subscribers over traffic. Because I'm a big believer. A lot of people, if you have a website, they, they're focused on traffic. And they talk about their readers. But, the, you know, the majority of that is, is basically drive-by traffic. They come to your website. You know, they got there from Google. They read something. They leave. They never come back. They didn't even know whose website they were on. Right. So what really matters is conversion, capturing that. And at the and when I first started, that was primarily RSS. Um, later, you know, email became the big thing. Yeah, and then in 2010, after you had made, you know, gotten traction, people started to notice. How did they start to notice, and how did that change things for you? Well, the big thing that happened in 2010 is that Time Magazine at the time uh, came out with an annual list of the 25 top blogs in the world. And in 2010, I was on the list. I was the first travel blog ever to be on it. And that got a lot of people's attention um, because that was something I could really, you know, hang my hat on. Yeah, that's um, incredible. <laughs> so, so that really helped. Uh, I had a, a, a large following on Twitter relatively early. I, I had a very early verified account on Twitter. Uh, that brought me a lot of followers as well as a lot of garbage. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, fake accounts. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a period of time where every day I would have between 20 and 50 basically porn accounts, you know, that were trying to promote chat lines. And what they would do is they would follow, they would create an account. And it was always the same pool of like Eastern European women with another pool of random Eastern European female names. And they would follow like, you know, 10 different verified accounts uh, that were all different. So it was like myself, some other celebrities, The Economist magazine, New York Times, you know, things like that to make it try to look legit. And uh, so there's a lot of that. So every time I see like some scandal, it's like, oh, this politician has fake followers. I'm like, yeah, they do. <laughs> they didn't necessarily buy it, but there's a lot of accounts that are fake that will follow legitimate accounts precisely to hide the, to try to, you know, camouflage what they are. I learned right. that right away. So some of the, the, maybe not so good things that come with having that verified account and way more attention then. Oh, I, th I think I, you know, I've heard estimates that as many as 80% of all the accounts on Twitter are either, uh, abandoned bots, you know, or fake. That the actual number of, of accounts that are active is, is quite small compared to the total number that have been registered. Oh, I believe the number. Yeah, I believe something yeah. like that for sure is possible. In 2010 then, so getting that, how did Time Magazine find your site? Do you know? Well, I, I found out later. Uh, so Ooh. I was in New York um, two years later and I contacted the editor who, who 
published that article and made the list. And I had dinner with him. And I asked him, why did you put me on the list? And he said, well, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. You're from Wisconsin. And my wife really liked your website. That was it. <laughs> That, that, that is, that's how that stuff gets determined. Uh, it was it was just that simple. I, and it was also popular. So I think there was, you know, some of that. Uh, if yeah. you go back and look at some of the sites that were also on the list, it was like Zen Habits and yeah, know, a lot of other sites that you'll probably still recognize from today. Um, but yeah, that that's basically it. Wow. That's, it's funny how that works sometimes, that personal connection, what, it's something where it's not as big as you, you think it is in terms of like this whole process and what I, you have to know someone that someone has to write the actual article and come up with this. So that's insane. But it's awesome that you got that. I'm sure that was, that was huge for you. And then, then at that time, so how did the things change for you after 2010 in terms of the business, like the blog itself as a business and making money from the blog? Did that change then or was it still farther out from there? Um. I was not as quick to monetize as a lot of people were because I had savings and it just wasn't as high a priority for me as it was for some people. So I was content to just kind of keep doing what I was doing. So I never put a big emphasis on SEO until recently. I never put a big emphasis on affiliate income. And I put a lot, I did a lot of social media because it was just easy. So I, I developed a very large following on social media. And I, I did a lot of brand ambassadorships uh, with different companies. Uh, and so that was pretty easy. Uh, and that, that's basically how it went for quite a while. But in the last, you know, so I, I stopped traveling uh, about three years ago. It was a little under 10 years I was on the road. And since then, I've really kind of, I've had more time basically. Uh, yeah. And so I've really kind of changed the whole business and what I'm doing. So more focus on the business itself, or what do you mean exactly? Yeah, sort of being more diligent about the website on SEO, doing affiliate income, launched my own conference, uh, some events, working on writing a book, podcasting. So, you know, just just a whole host of things. And basically, I just I just have more time now. So even last year in 2018, I was on the road for about six months. Okay. And, you know, that's a lot of travel for most people. You know, Rick Steves isn't on the road that much. And this year I've done almost nothing. Uh, I've done a couple domestic trips. I went to Montreal and that's it. I may do some stuff later in the year. I might go to Spain and, and, and Europe. And, um, I've, you know, I've had invitations to go some places, but I basically just turned everything down this year because I want to focus on work. And how did you get to that point? Like, how did you decide that, okay, now's the time that I want to focus on work and stop traveling? Because you did for so many years. I'm, I'm just curious on how you get to that point. Well, I can tell you the exact moment. I was in a hotel in uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, and I was cross-legged on the bed because they had no desk in the room, uh, sitting with crappy Wi-Fi. And <laughs> I just, I had a point where it was just like, F this. I just got sick of working that way. And I was getting really burned out. And uh, that was the moment I decided, okay, I need to get a place where I can go between trips. And so that's what I did. So I got an apartment. I mean, I live in Minneapolis now, uh, which is where okay. I lived before I started traveling. I, I purposely picked an apartment in a place where I can walk everywhere I need to go. I have grocery stores, restaurants, theaters, everything in walking distance. So when I'm here, I don't do anything. Like I don't, I don't get in the car. I don't drive around a lot. And I picked an apartment building that has literally the best bandwidth in the world. <laughs> There's an ISP in town here, and I, I know the CEO from, from my old life. They wired up southern Minneapolis with fiber, and they offer gigabit. They were one of the first places to offer gigabit, and they even offer a 10 gigabit service if you want it, but that's ridiculous and way it's over. overkill. Yeah, it's uh, overkill. But I do, yeah, but I do a lot of uh, you know file uploads. Uh, that's so fast now. I was able to upload, you know, I have a Drobo, several like 16 terabytes. I was able to upload that in like a week to uh, a cloud-based storage unit. It would, that would have taken years if I had <laughs> normal internet. You know, I can do podcasting like this, radio interviews. It's just really nice. So basically creating that work environment that allows me to be more productive. Yeah, that's essential. And one thing going back to, obviously you started in 2007, had savings and all of that. At what point were you making uh, a full-time-ish revenue, like income from, from the travel block? It's hard to put a set time on it. It kind of phased in, I would say, probably maybe around 
2014, 15, I was probably at that point. Okay. But even, but even then I've, you know, I've learned a lot. I think there's been a lot of changes in this business in, in terms of what's happened. And one of the, you know, I, I had several rules that I adopted that have always helped me. Like one of them is I never, ever say no to an interview request. Never. Interesting. I, I don't care how small your podcast is. I don't care how small your blog is. I never say no because you never know who's going to hear it. You never know how big their website or their podcast is going to become. And you know what? It's maybe an hour at most out of my time. And if somebody wants to take the time to talk to me, of course, I'll, I'll do it. And that's paid off in spades. That's gotten me all sorts of, you know, mentions and someone heard it and then someone, you know, someone else hears it. That's been a policy that has, you know, I, and I've told this to so many people and I've had several people that have come back and said, I, I've adopted your policy and it led to so many good things because they would do an interview for this small blog. And it turns out that one of the readers of this blog worked for a newspaper who then contacted the person. Then they got a, you know, mention in a newspaper and they got a link back and, you know, so all kinds of great things happen. So that's, that's one of my policies. And as a result, you know, I have a very, um, the link profile for my website is really good. You know, I have uh, some amazing high quality links from, yeah places that are very hard to get links from. And I've also been extremely opinionated. I think if you if you want to be a thought leader and get people talking about you, you need to do that. So I've been very vocal about, say, the state of travel publishing. And I've also been very active. So I'm on the National Board of Directors of the Society of American Travel Writers, which is a 60-year-old organization. And I'm the first blog, I was the first blogger to be a member. And I was the first blogger ever to sit on the board of directors. Um, and again, if you want to be a thought leader, if you want to be kind of at the cutting edge, I think you need to be doing that kind of stuff to constantly be, be showing credibility and authority, especially in the world of blogging, because there's no gatekeepers. You know, it used to be if you wrote for the New York Times or National Geographic, just being associated with that brand was enough, right? That was the prestige you got was by association with the brand. Well, it doesn't really work that way anymore. You have to create your own brand. And uh, to do that, you need to, it's just, a, it's a constant state of, of, of doing things and, and doing accomplishments. And, and with, with growing the, the blog and everything over, over time, like what else has been helpful for you to actually grow and make traction and even get these requests? I mean, just, do you just get requests because of like the time article and other articles? Like, how does that happen? Like I said, I've been very vocal. So I would say, most people in the travel, I won't say the whole industry, but certainly like the travel media industry. And certainly like if you just said Gary, they would probably know who I, who you're talking about. Yeah. There aren't a lot of Gary's and, and I think most people would know who I am. So if someone's doing a story about certain things, they know to contact me as a source. So if they're doing a story about travel blogging, so the New York Times did one, I think, in 2013. Uh, National Geographic Traveler did one. You know, they always they they quote me, which means you know, getting a link to the website. And I also have developed an expertise in areas such as uh, National Park Service sites in the United States and UNESCO World Heritage sites. So you know, I can talk about that. And I think people just uh, as your name gets out there, you develop expertise and authority, and then it, it kind of becomes a self fulfilling thing. Yeah, where they keep coming to you because you are the person to talk to on these topics. So it just kind of makes sense. Obviously, you built this up over time to get to that point, but it makes a lot of sense in that way. And you had mentioned earlier too the idea of like you know being more serious about SEO and other things working on the business now. You know what is that SEO strategy you have, content strategy you have now after you've learned so much over the years? So I just hired uh, an amazing editor for my website. And she's got a fantastic SEO background. So the, so over the last, you know, so I did a lot of like technical SEO stuff over the last year or two, uh, changing my URL structure, moving to, you know, SSL. Uh, I deleted, you know, I told you how I posted an image every day for eight years. Yeah. I deleted all of them. Oh, wow. Every single one of them because it was thin, <laughs> it was, it was thin content in the eyes of Google. None of that was right. getting any traffic, right? Right. It right. was an image and a caption. That's all it was. So I got rid of all that. I de-indexed almost everything I wrote for the first two or three years of the blog. Uh, because again, it was not optimized. It was just rambling. And a lot of it was very short because I was writing it like a social media post. I was right. writing it like you would write an update on Facebook. 
So a lot of it was maybe two to 500 words, something like that. So, you know, the change is, is now going back, optimizing, updating content, focusing on where I have my strong point. So for example, if I write about a World Heritage Site, with some major exceptions, like if it's the Taj Mahal or, or something like that, that it won't work. But I'll usually be on page one without any effort. Yeah. Usually I'll be, I'll rank like third or fourth behind UNESCO.org, Wikipedia, and, you know, the local destinations official website, something like that. So, and that's without link building or, you know, if I, if I actually tried, I'm sure I could probably get up a, you know, a place or two. So that that's one of the big things. And then also, like I have also ignored affiliate marketing for the longest time. So we're now starting to put a big emphasis on that, going back to all the old posts, putting in uh, affiliate links. Uh, and then, you know, over time, I've I gathered quite a large email list, but I haven't really done much with it. So I'm working on that as well. And with the email list, then, Sia thinks that's actually something where I was doing research for an article on Tim Ferriss, and he didn't do anything with his email list for the first like few years, and he had like a few hundred thousand emails. So like, what is your strategy kind of looking like for that side of things as well? Um, so I'm right in the middle right now of I'm going to start an autoresponder series. And the nice. autoresponder series is basically going to be, you know, the first email, it's basically describing what I just told you on this podcast. How did I start doing this? Yeah, because that's what a lot of people want to know. They would love to travel. So I'm just going to tell my story. And then I'm going to progressively go through all the different parts of the world I've been through, um, starting with the Pacific, which is where I started. I'll talk about Australia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, West Africa, South Africa, North Africa, um, you know, Southern Europe, uh, Western Europe, you know, whatever, uh, lumping, you know, regions of the world together to kind of talk about those places and then intersperse that all. So it's going to be a very long autoresponder series, actually, yeah. um, with, with links to previous things I've written and inspersed in there, I'll, I'll have a special email, maybe about travel photography, how I, how I learned to become a better photographer. Cause I have a, a travel photography course. So I'll use that as an opportunity. It's an online video based course. Um, Here's, you know, the tour company that I've used for quite a few trips to help me go to Antarctica, to help me sail, you know, West Africa, Central Asia, um, the travel insurance I use, things like that, uh, which will all have affiliate links, but also I think are, are helpful things that people have questions about because I get it all the time. You're going on a trip. It's like, well, should I get insurance? It's like, yeah, you should get insurance because travel insurance is dirt cheap and it can really save you. <laughs> Uh, if you find yourself in trouble, you know, if you get injured or you get sick, or even if you miss a flight, uh, it can be a huge help. And with the amount of content you have, obviously the backlog and years of blogging, I imagine that autoresponder, you'll have plenty to, to use with that. And one of the people I had in the podcast, Zach Evans, my best friend is episode eight. Um, his autoresponder at this point is like a year, maybe a year and a half long. I mean, it's literally like emails every day for the first few weeks. And then I think it disperses to maybe a couple of times a week or like once a week. But it's one of those things where if you have the content you have, and especially, especially like you do have it, um, you have such amazing content that you can easily drip out to people over time and it's still going to be valuable to them. So it's definitely great that you're doing that and it makes a lot of sense for your business. Is yeah, I mean, that's the plan. And, you know, one of the things I really, I want to do is I want to generate a community of well-traveled people um, for a couple of reasons. One, they're far more interesting. Uh, so if you ever want to do events or meetups or things like that in the future, they're, they're great people to, to have as a community. Uh, if I wanted to do tours, you know, they're, they're more apt to sign up. Uh, but also just for marketing purposes, they spend a lot of money on travel every year. So yeah. as opposed to the person that travels, you know, once a year, once every other year, and they just go to a Sandals resort in Jamaica. Um, I want the person that is actually like, oh, Kamachka in Russia. That's interesting because most people don't care about that. Or they're, you know, they'll ask me questions like, oh, what did you do in Tonga? Or, you know, you know, things like that, uh, that they're more adventurous and they want to go to some of these places. And so it's really like curating the community you want to have. Yeah. If that, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's really kind of the long-term goal is, is to build that kind of community. And, and that group is not a huge group. It's not, you know, it, it's really the top one or 2% of travelers, but I think it's the best group to have as your, your market. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I agree hundred percent and building that community is something where, yeah, it's just 
good for business one, but then also just good for life in terms of living a good life and enjoying what you're doing. It seems like that would be a wonderful thing to do. And one last like question on the business side of things that I'm curious about is how did you kind of balance the you know, business side of blogging and travel blogging, all this with the actual traveling, enjoying things. Like, how, what did that look like for you? And maybe it evolved over time, but what did that look like? I've never had a problem with it, really. Um, my way of looking at the world and, and what I'm interested in is always kind of from a learning perspective, and that that just goes very well with blogging. Um, you know, I'm not there to just sit on the beach with a novel and yeah. be in the presence of water. Uh, I, I'd rather go into the water and go scuba diving or something, or, you know, go see, a some ancient ruins or something like that. And, or to read about a place, you know, I, you know, I tell people I never use guidebooks ever. Um, but I always get history books and you're far better off getting a history book about a place than you are getting a guidebook that really goes into it, or even a certain section or a part of their history. You know, there, there's a, um, for example, I, went, I remember when I was in Vietnam, uh, everyone I said, well, what do they think about the Vietnam War? One, they don't call it the Vietnam War because every war with Vietnam is the Vietnam War. They call it right. the American War. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> right. Um, but two, that's all we know. That's all most Americans know is the Vietnam War, right? Well, yeah. What happened before the Vietnam War? I don't know what happened after. I don't know. They don't know. They, they, they have, you know, once the Vietnam war was over, it was no longer in the news. You just never heard about it. And so, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that people are just unaware of. How did Vietnam get to that point? You know, the history of French colonialism. Um, I remember going to Japan and reading a book about uh, post-World War II Japan. Because a lot of people are familiar with the story of World War II, right? And then what? Yeah. And that transition from how Japan went from being a war-ravaged country to becoming the modern country that it is today is a really interesting story. And it, it's something that history kind of forgets. You know, it's not sexy for the history channel. You know, World War II gets all the attention. Uh, and there are moments like that in history that get a lot of attention and then people forget about all the other stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple places there, and learning the history before you you go there, I was would make it more interesting. You learn more about it. I want to transition into like, how do you actually choose which places you go to? Is you, you've been to so many places, you said a hundred something countries, hundred fifty plus or something countries over over your career, your life, I should say. How do you choose where to go? Uh, the first priority is going to places I haven't been before. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a country. It could be just a region of a country um, that I haven't been before. So last November, I was in the Extremadura region of Spain, which gets very few tourists uh, compared to the rest of the country. Yet, it has some of the best Roman ruins in the world. It's the place where most of the conquistadors hailed from uh, before they, they went to the New World. Uh, it has all sorts of amazing stuff. And, and very few, you know, tourists get there. So when the opportunity came, uh, yeah, I jumped on it. Um, if it's a country I haven't been to before, anything like that, uh, it, it's always something that I'm interested in. And even if I go visit someplace, I'm going to try to do something uh, or, you know, that I haven't done before. Uh, I go to New York at least once or twice a year for business, you know, for conferences and stuff. And every yeah. time I'm there, I've always tried to visit one of the National Park Service sites in the city. Or, or outside of the city. So I've pretty much been to everything now, except for Governor's Island. Problem is it's only open in the summer and I'm usually there in the winter. Uh, so like my next trip, I'm going to probably rent a car and go drive around visiting the sites in Long Island, uh, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Uh, so I always try to find something to do, even if I've been there before, that's a little bit different. And is that, is that I guess, what, dro- what drives you or what has driven you so far in your travels is to see and experience new things and constantly kind of have that? Because I you, I think you mentioned, and if it was this interview or a different one, but um, initially kind of going out to travel the world for maybe a year, and obviously that turned into many more than one year. What what drives you in that pursuit of, of travel? Um, I like traveling. I like learning more than anything else. I'm the kind of guy that... So when I, when I was a kid, I was the sort of guy that would read 
the encyclopedia, right? Or the almanac. I was that kind of nerdy kid that would do that sort of stuff yeah. um, because I always liked learning. And so to me, uh, that traveling is fundamentally an educational experience. And so as long as there's always something more to learn and the more places you visit, the more you start to see the connections between all the places you've been before. So it isn't just, I go to A, B and C, I learn about A, B and C. You're also learning about A and B, B and C, C and A, and what A, B and C all have in common in the ways they're different. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of why I do it. Yeah. And then uh, did that ever, I mean, as it, as you went from 2007 and the years progressed, how did you change how you traveled or the, you know, how you chose which places to go to? Did that ever evolve over the years? Uh, the biggest difference is that I work more with, uh, the travel and tourism industry now. Okay. Um, you know, I work with destinations and companies and so I have a lot of more opportunities to do stuff like that. Uh, that's the biggest thing. So last December I was invited to go to Saudi Arabia and I absolutely jumped at that chance because that traditionally has been a very hard country to visit. Uh, until recently they never gave out tourist visas at all. The only way to visit wow. was either on business. So, you, you know, you work for a petroleum company or something, or you had to be Muslim and be on the Hajj. And that was pretty much the only way to get to Saudi Arabia. Um, so when this opportunity came up, I, yeah, I jumped on it and I got to go up to Alula and, uh, you know, that's in the Northern part of Saudi Arabia, which is really beautiful. And it's very similar to the Southern part of Jordan near Wadi Rum. And there again, that that's like the compare and contrast having been to, uh, Jordan, it's, it's kind of the same area, kind of like how the Rocky mountains, you know, as extends from Canada into the U S is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, that, that region is, is very much the same. If you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, that's where the movie was shot. Um, and so there's a lot of these great erosional formations and there's, there, they have an, a version of basically Petra in Saudi Arabia. It's, it's very similar, also built by the Nabataean people, but uh, hardly anybody goes there. Very few people know about it. Wow. Such a unique experience. And, and with that too, what other things, I know one of the things you mentioned, I don't know which uh, interview or profile, it might have been your LinkedIn profile, but you mentioned that you resisted the temptation to take $5 million moon rock in the Solomon Islands. Can you explain what, what that was all about? Yeah, that was really early in my travels. So like I said, I read a lot of stuff. I voiced an interest in space and I have, I had read some articles about um, some of the moon rocks that came from the Apollo mission have kind of got out in the wild and they're insanely expensive uh, because there aren't many of them. And yeah. so there are black market collectors that have paid as much as $5 million for a moon rock. Well, in the 1970s, uh, the United States gave to every country on earth a moon rock on a plaque saying as you know, a gift from the people of the United States. And I was in the Solomon Islands in 2007 and I was at the National Museum, and I really use that term loosely because it was a tin hut with, you know, feathers and shells and, and things like that there. And they had a display case. And in this display case was a plaque of the moon rock given oh by Jimmy gosh. Carter to the people of the Solomon Islands when they became independent in 1978. And there was no lock on this display case. And I knew the value of this thing, you know, having on the black market. Now oh, yeah. I have no I have no idea how you how you'd go about selling a moon rock uh, <laughs> or finding buyers for it. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> right. But I knew what you know what people had bought it for. So that's insane. I went back to my hotel, went online, looked up, you know, black market moon rocks, and yeah, I found more about this. Went back to the museum the next day and I said, would it be all right if I took out the moon rock to take a photo? You know, because I'm an American, you know, some connection to the United States. They're like, sure, yeah. no problem. So I took it out, photographed it, put it back, and I wrote an article about it, about how I found this moon rock. Well, turns out there was an attorney who worked for NASA who has been trying to find these moon rocks. And there were some countries where they just disappeared. They were taken by the dictator and they were brought home or whatever. And some of them, they just, they weren't necessarily stolen, but they got put in a shelf somewhere and forgotten. And this guy uh, for NASA said, we did not know where the Solomon Islands moon rock was. 
Oh and my you God. found it. So thanks. And a couple of years later, I had someone email me and said, you know, it's still there. It's still sitting in the display case <laughs> unlocked. So. That's insane. I guess you never know what you'll find in your travels. Oh my goodness. What's like one or two other kind of interesting stories or like unique experiences that stand out? I'm sure there's so many as it may be hard to choose, but is there anything else that kind of stands out from your travels? Oh man. Um, it's kind of an impossible question. You know, I've, just, I've, just, I've just been able to do so many cool things, whether it's dog sledding or photographing polar bears, uh, swimming with great white sharks, bungee jumping. Um, man, you name it. I've, I've been able to do so much in so many places. And, you know, I've been very fortunate in, in doing this. And, you know, one of the things I've said is that before I started traveling, I could not tell you one day from the next. Because every day was kind of the same, right? Yeah. You get up, you go to work, you do whatever. In fact, my life now is kind of like that. Now that I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> spending, spending more time at home. But like, on the road, minute. I could remember every day and I still can, right? I can remember everything I did. Um, even if I can't pair it up to the exact date, I remember all that stuff. And I can go back to my photos and remember so many of the details. And you're just in a different mode when you're traveling that you remember yeah so much of this stuff uh, that happens. Yeah. And one of the other things with travel, you travel for so many years and all over, how many months, I mean, were you literally never back home or did you visit home once or twice a year? Like, how did you handle that? No, I, I did. Uh, my dad passed away in 2010. So I had to come back and um, uh, when he was in the hospital. And so I was here for several months for that. And uh you know, I, I'd been back, you know, I, I ended up coming back to the U.S. quite frequently after that just to uh, go to conferences and travel domestically because, you know, uh, the United States is part of the world. And I, I did some really extensive road trips throughout the U.S. and Canada. Um, I did one that was probably, I think, 24,000 miles by my odometer over a course of Whoa. three months. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I just did a lot. I mean, I did a lot of driving. I've, I've driven from the Northern tip of Newfoundland to San Diego to, um, Key West to, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank, uh, to Vancouver, you know, and everything in between I've been to, in fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I went to Rhode Island and I have now visited all 50 States twice. Oh, wow. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. And I'm working on, and I've been to every U.S. territory, and I'm working on visiting all 419 sites in the U.S. national park system. And I'm almost halfway there right now. Jeez, that's, that's incredible. Obviously, more, more time left to make that happen. And, and, that, and, that, and there's, you know, that takes you to every corner of the country. So it's not just, oh, I was in Fargo, North Dakota. I've been to North Dakota. No, I've driven all the way across North Dakota. East and West, North and South. And it's been that way for a, a lot of states where I've literally been to, you know, I, I haven't even counted the number of counties I've been in. Um, you know, most of them I would have just driven through. But um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been to the Oklahoma panhandle, the Nebraska pan. I've been to a lot of panhandles. Uh, and <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's not just, you know, going to the capital cities or the major cities around the world or in the U S it's really getting out there. And so, you know, I drive a lot, um, in a few days I'm going, uh, going to drive. So I live in Minneapolis. I'm driving to Wisconsin to visit my mom. It's about a four hour drive, but there's a brand new world heritage site in the U S and it's located in Wisconsin. And I'd never been there before. So I'm going to drive oh, wow. out of my way to go visit. It's, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright's, uh, studio. So I'm going to, wow. you know, take some time and, It'll probably take me, you know, three hours out of my way, but that's fine. Yeah. If you have the time and you want to see it, why not? That's awesome. And and throughout this, you said in the beginning, like yeah, there was no, there's no, no wife and kids, no spouse or anything. Like, how has that relationship side of things gone while, while you've traveled? Have you wanted someone? Have you had someone? Like it definitely comes to mind. How has that gone for you? Horrible. Horrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, there are some exceptions to this, but by and large, the people I know who have traveled extensively, uh, if they were single when they started, they're single now. And the people who are married were married when they started. Again, there are a few exceptions to that, but yeah. that's pretty much been the case. It is very difficult. 
and um, the whole eat, pray, love thing, you know, and and I should also say it's really different for men than women. Uh, If you're a woman, you can go anywhere in the world and and you'll have guys, you know, hitting on you uh, just as much as they would in any bar. Sure. But if if you're a man, one, in some countries, you, you definitely don't want to do that. If you're in the Middle East, you don't want to be... I, I think trying to pick up women there, uh, that's going to be yeah. very much frowned upon. But also, I you know I don't think people are that interested in some dude who's going to be gone in a week. And yeah, that'd be challenging. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's there's been uh, some women I've met. Um, I met a woman on the boat from Fukuoka, Japan, to Busan in South Korea. We we hung out in in South Korea for quite a bit. Uh, there was another woman I met who was uh, she's Chinese, but worked in Australia. Uh, we met in line at the Palace of Versailles and ended up hanging out in Paris for several days. And uh, there's just a lot of bloggers that I met uh, that I've been friends with. But yeah, it's not something which is conducive to relationships. You know, I have um, uh, women online because I have a large following who will always send me stuff. And it's like, oh, I wish I could go in your suitcase and things like that. And really what they're interested in is travel. Not yeah. me. <laughs> they want a free trip. <laughs> um, and, and you always have to kind of, you know, uh, make that distinction. Um, and I also, you know, I started traveling when I was in my 30s, my mid 30s. And a lot of other bloggers, you know, they're starting when they're like in their early 20s. It is a hugely different experience uh, when you're kind of doing it at that age. And there's the hostels and the party crowd and that kind of thing where everyone's just yeah. trying to hook up, then doing it when you're older. Uh, very, very, very different experience. For better if you can, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's tremendously different. I mean, would you have changed anything about it? Would you have gone earlier if you could have? Like, would you have changed yes. anything about the experience you've had so far? Yeah, you would have gone I earlier. I absolutely would have started earlier if, if, if I, looking back on it now, yeah, I think I would have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Simply because I would have had an even bigger first mover advantage. Um, yeah, I think I could have done even more and I just, I like traveling. Yeah. I would have wanted to do it sooner. Yeah. Were you, were you in this? I mean, at the time then, obviously you said you had another business. Were you just not in that state to travel or not even thinking about it or when you were younger? You know, I, I, so I, I had this uh, business. So I, you know, when I was 20 years old, I sold, uh, this company that I had started, I had 50 people working for me. I sold it to a you know big international company, and I was just at the right place at the right time. I had you know I had some friends who were doing internet stuff, and that's how I got uh, introduced to it. And I was at the right time in that the internet was in its really early foundation, starting to take off, and nobody knew what they were doing. Um, and so I kind of. I kind of lucked into it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of success is being at the right place at the right time, but being able to do something with it. Yeah. A lot of people have those opportunities, but they never exploit it. I was able to exploit it. And then after I was done, I was like, all right, well now what? Yeah. And uh, so this is the, you know, I, I'd never done anything for more than four years prior to, to travel, you know, any business I'd started, any relationship I was in school, you name it. I had like a four year timeline on it. And then I did something else. Uh, so this is the, the first thing I've been able to keep doing for an extended period of time. And do you think you'll continue to spend months and months traveling? I mean, would you like to, at least I assume you would, but would you like to the rest of your life? Um, uh, not right now. So right okay. now the goal is business yes. and I have enough travel and enough stories to, to last me for years. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. So, but it, it's to get the business and the website up and running and functioning at a point where I can then spend more time traveling again. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Then to have, and, the free, have it just set up and ready to go. Yeah. And, and travel on my own. So I, I don't really, you know, if, if possible, I'd rather not work with the travel industry because there's always demands on your time and, and what you end up producing when you do that. I'd rather just go off on my own and photograph and, and do what I want. Yeah, just the freedom to do, right. to, yeah, freedom to choose is something, especially a lot of entrepreneurs, they get into entrepreneurship for the freedom. It depends on what kind of business you're starting, obviously, but um, especially if you're a blogger, even podcasters, but you want to have that freedom eventually where you can do whatever you want to do. That's kind of the point. If you're starting over, like, again, if you're starting over 
today, let's just say, like, what what would you do as a travel blogger today if you're just getting started? That's a good question. I did a session at a, a blogger conference last year on this very question. Uh, I would not put a lot of emphasis on social media at all. Okay. Um, because at the end of the day, you don't control it. Facebook is going to screw you over. I'm, you know, I have no faith in that company whatsoever. <laughs> so like all these Instagram influencers, if someone, if a company is paying an influencer, that's money that Facebook isn't getting. And that's a, that's a bug to them, not a feature. So yeah. if they were to completely destroy the influencer economy, and let's say it results in $10 billion being destroyed, but they get $100 million, that's a win for them because they don't care about the rest of it. Um, and I think that something, I don't know how it's going to play out, but that's going to happen eventually. Um, because again, they, you don't control the environment. And every so often, like once a month, you hear the story of some influencer at 100,000 followers and their account gets deleted or it gets hacked and someone takes it over. Uh, and, and then you're, you're screwed. You have nothing. So yeah. I would focus on a website um, and I would spend 80% of my time when I start writing for other people's websites. Uh, kind of an 80-20 thing on like my own guest website. Guest posting and stuff. Exactly. I would have some very long form, in-depth content, You know, a few really good posts. And then over a period of say two to three years, you're going to take that 80-20 and you're going to reverse it. So it's 80% in your site, 20% on other people's sites. What's your logic behind that? Uh, because you need to build up authority when you start. No one has authority when they start, right? Yeah. That's, that's algorithmic authority and real-world authority. Um, algorithmic authority, you need backlinks. You need mentions. on, on People need to know about you. And yeah. then uh, real-world authority, you need to actually go out and do stuff. So in the world of travel, yeah, it's doing guest posting. Um, you know, there's a lot of like marketing websites out there. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with many of them. And yeah. their niche is marketing, right? Or it's how to make money online. And they make money online by telling you how to make money online. <laughs> and there's always, you know, a, you know, th there are some basic things they talk about. But what they don't understand is my industry, which is going to be very different than the fashion industry or the food industry, things like that. So within yeah. the travel industry, you know, I would be reaching out and looking to appear in travel magazines and getting mentions in those locations and, and being a source for other people's articles uh, about your travels. Uh, you have to travel extensively, right? If you want to be known in travel sectors, you have to actually get out and travel. At the end of the day, I mean, that's, that's part of the deal. You got to <laughs> go and do that. Um, but yeah, once you've kind of started to establish that, uh, then you need to take advantage of the links and the mentions and the authority by creating content on your own website and drawing traffic to your website then. But I don't think it should ever be 100% for your website. You have to, you should be doing interviews. You know, it may not be guest posting. It may be doing what I'm doing with you right now and just talking. Yeah. I guess podcasting. I mean, if you follow Seth Godin, that's something he's always, he's talked about recently of like guest podcasting is like the new guest blogging essentially uh, because of how podcasting is growing. And I still think there's value in both, a ton of value in both, I should say. But yeah, like you mentioned, it just gets you exposure outside of your own little bubble as well. And then you do get the links back and can grow SEO and have traffic come there for free and all these different benefits that you just don't get from a social media post that you'll never get from a social media post. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you're a, an influencer, a creator, a blogger, whatever you want to call it, your marketing is nothing more than introducing yourself to people who have no clue who you are, right? Yeah. So there are going to be people listening to this podcast who have, have no clue who I am. They've never heard of me before, but they're going to hear all this travel stuff. And they're going to say, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to follow yeah. him. And so they'll go find me online or Instagram or wherever they want to follow me. And, uh, you know, I'll grow my audience by some small amount uh, from doing that. And you just have to do that over and over and over, which is why I have the rule, always say yes to an interview. 
Yeah. And I, I love that. And that's also something I heard um, was a few years ago from Gary Vaynerchuk talking about how he would do, especially early on with his, his wine career, he would do interviews for, yeah, same thing you're mentioning here. He would do interviews with everybody, like everyone, you know, five people here, seven people following this person, because that's all new people. And they're all new people that are going to find you. And then it just helps you over time. And you compound that. And then they tell people and then the people they tell, tell people and it just it keeps growing like that. And so I definitely love that strategy. And I'm, I'm thankful that you took the time today to, to speak. And where can people go to learn about what you're doing? And is there anything else you'd like to mention? I am really easy to find online. If you type in Gary and travel, you'll find me. My website is everything-everywhere.com. Again, search for everything everywhere. Uh, super easy to find. Uh, go to my website, links to all the social media, email, whatever. You can find me there. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast and link to anything we mentioned in here. Everyone go check out Gary. I've seen so many of his pictures and we actually met up years ago in Appleton and now we're reconnecting, which is great. But Gary, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.